And what are you in flow with? You're in flow with the evolutionary current of consciousness. So consciousness has plans and it has agendas and that agenda is evolution for you and all things and there are certain currents which optimise the evolution of everything and if you're in one of those currents and actually contributing to it you'll feel the frictionlessness the feeling from where the idea of flow comes Hello I'm Matt Ringrose Welcome to Very Vedic. I'm going to be answering questions we all have about life today using the oldest wisdom on the planet, the ancient Vedic text from India, the Vedas. I've been teaching Vedic meditation for quite a few years now, and I've been using this ancient wisdom to support my students along the way. The more I teach this knowledge, the more I appreciate its relevance in the world today. It's so easy to understand and apply in your own life. And I want to share it with you. The Vedas were written over 6,000 years ago with one purpose, to help us. They have the potential to free us from suffering and allow us to live our fullest lives. My student Anna will be joining me. And together we'll explore relationships, love, feelings, finding a sense of purpose and basically anything else that comes up from the Vedic view. And I, for one, am excited. If you're keen to learn how to meditate or you have a question you'd like answered, DM me on Instagram at Bondi Meditation or email info at bondimeditation.com.au. Okay, here we go. Hello, Anna. Hello, Matt. How are you doing? I'm, I'm good. How good. are you going? Pretty good. A little bit nervous about our first podcast. I'm nervous as well. Oh, Let's great. start here We're gonna with be the nerves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, Sounds like I, a natural place to start. I think it's going to be good, but we just need to get started. Yes. Okay, we're started. Let's okay. start. So, have you got any questions for me? How do you want to do this? Yeah, I mean, I had, um, I wrote down a question on the bus on the way here. Yeah. And... It's about the ego because oh, yeah. I feel like the ego gets a really bad rap, hmm. and um, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's it. It's it's true that it should get a bad rap. Maybe you know mm-hmm. you hear that it's kind of it can hold us back. It can make us small. It can yeah. kind of stop us doing the things that we want to do. I just want to like kind of expand on the ego, in, especially in terms of um, just like. My question is, is there good parts of the ego? Ah, Are there yeah, parts that's a good that question. Can, is, is there anything about it that's actually trying to work for us? Mm. Well, it's a great question, um, particularly in this context with the Vedic view, because the Vedic view of the ego is it's not a goodie or a buddy. Mm. It's a neutral receptacle, if you like, of ideas about ourselves, which give us an idea of what our identity is. So in order to explain the Vedic definition of the ego and how it works and how it's kind of like Switzerland, it's neutral, um, we could <laughs> look at the analogy of the babushka dolls. You know, the Russian dolls that fit mm. inside each other, getting smaller mm. and smaller. Okay, so let's look at that. So the, the, there's the, what these represent in this analogy are the increasingly subtle 
layers of ourselves. We start with the outside as the most gross, the most manifest layer. And then we come to the body, the human body itself. And that could be the first big doll. And as we go into the next next um, biggest doll, we have the senses. Then we go in again to a more subtle layer and we have the mind. Then we go in again and we have the intellect. One more inside that, the fine level of feeling. Inside that is the ego. And then finally, the smallest, most subtle layer, the smallest little doll in the middle is pure being or pure consciousness. Okay, now let's have a look how the ego works in terms of, as it were, defining our identity and getting this sense of what we are to ourselves. So what happens is we hear a message and it comes in through the body, through the ears, probably, <laughs> and then through the senses and it comes to through the mind, through the intellect and past the fine level of feeling and into the ego. And it can maybe make its way into the ego and start to give us an idea about who we are. So in order to have a look at how this actually works, let's give them little roles. So as a message comes through, and let's say the message is, you're a bad girl, Anna. Let's say that comes in through the ears, through the senses, and it gets to the intellect. Now, the intellect is like the bouncer to the club, and the ego is the club. And the intellect decides what can and can't go into the club. So what it does is it looks behind itself into the club, says, is there anything in there that kind of means that this can't go in? It goes, no, not really. So in goes the idea that you're a bad girl into the ego, and that becomes a part of your identity. Yeah. And then a bit later on, next week or whatever, you're a bad girl, Anna, comes in again. Comes in, the intellect has a look at it. It says, is there anything stopping you going in? Oh, no, actually, is your kind of type of people in there, in this club, you'll fit right in. And it allows you that idea to come into the ego as well. So now you're starting to have a more defined idea of what you are. And it's a bad girl. <laughs> and then somebody says to you, you're a good girl. Anna, that idea comes in, gets to the intellect, the bouncer of the club. The intellect has a look at it and thinks, well, let's see if you're allowed in. Looks behind. No, I don't think this is your kind of place. They're not your kind of people in here. So that idea gets rejected. And it gets bounced, if you like. It's not allowed into <laughs> your sense of identity. So now the dominant sense of identity continues to be, you're a bad girl. And this is how we build our identities. It's all externally referenced. It's stuff coming in via the senses that start to give us an idea of who we are. But that idea of who we are is imperfect, to say the least. What happens when we learn Vedic meditation is something pretty fascinating. And that is that we get this mantra, which doesn't have a meaning. That comes in through the ears, through the senses, gets to the intellect, doesn't mean anything. So the intellect can't really stop it from coming in. It doesn't understand it. So it sneaks past the bouncer. And for the first time ever, it actually sneaks past the ego. And the ego looks inside rather than outside for the first time for its identity. And what does it see inside? That most subtle layer within us, being. And this layer has all sorts of beautiful qualities to it. 
sorts of all sorts of beautiful qualities to it which the false ideas about ourselves can't live with. So each time the mantra goes past, the ego turns inside and has the experience of itself as something other than this externally referenced ideas instead of pure being itself, that idea imprints subtly onto our sense of identity. And then the mantra comes back out and later on it goes back in, the ego flips around again, has that more of that idea or more of that sense of identity of ourselves as pure being, pure consciousness, rather than these ideas about ourselves. And over time, that starts to become the dominant impression, the dominant self-identity. And these other ideas like, you know, Anna is a bad girl, they can't coexist with that. So those lower vibration ideas start getting ejected and you start to have a clearer perception and experience of yourself as the truer reality of yourself, as being. So you see, does that make a bit of sense? Yeah, it yeah. does. Yeah. So, so within each ego, there lives being? Hmm. Is that what you were saying? <laughs> it's an interesting way of putting it. So this is all, the babushka dolls are an analogy. But whenever we talk about anything from the Vedic view, we always start from, and it always permeates the whole discussion, the idea that there is only one thing. Okay? So, and these are levels of subtlety within that thing. So as we sit here now in this room, there's a manifest reality. There are chairs, table, sunglasses on it, a bottle of uh, aftershave as it happens. <laughs> <laughs> Very important. Very important. Um, but that's the most manifest, the most gross layer. But what else is in this room on a more subtle layer? Are I'm you asking, asking you. me? I'm asking you, yeah. Mm. I, I, I'm not sure. I'm okay. not sure. I sense that there is something more. Yeah. Um, but I, I wouldn't know how to explain it. Mm. Well, there are, um, there are all the things that we can sense via the senses, which are the more manifest, um, more gross ideas and energies. And then there are also feelings. Mm. They exist in this room. Yes. Right? And ideas and thoughts. A thought, we could say, is more subtle than a microphone. Right? <laughs> yes. Yeah? Yes. Um, but so sometimes it, it doesn't feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You can feel like somebody shouting very loudly into a microphone. Um, but the fact is there are many, many layers of reality. And we actually experience them all the time. So there are things which we can see and sense with our senses and then there are experiences we have which are beyond the senses. And the most subtle layer of all of that is the consciousness which connects it all. Um, so the subtlest layer within us, which also, by the way, happens to be the truest in the sense that it's the one that never changes, is that everything is one thing. Um, and so the ego is a more manifest, more expressed level of reality than that but what it does is it has the experience of the deeper truth via the meditation so does that answer your question yeah it does and i guess like to expand on that when it does sense the deeper truth mm. is it happy to kind of renegotiate how what how it's been living and 
and and yeah. what it's been believing in is yeah. it happy to yeah, that's change very very good yes absolutely the problem here is not the ego the ego is neutral and will take on the new information but something's out of the loop here isn't it and that's the intellect because the intellect is only aware of what's coming in from the outside right right so these kind of this new idea is sneaking in the back door the intellect isn't aware of. So you can have a new sense of identity, which is on a very deep level, on a level of being and experience, but still have some very mistaken ideas. I so understand that. Okay, that's good. So a very mistaken intellect, which can continue to cause you suffering yes. and deny the truth of what you are. Yes. So a big part of this whole process of what do we want to call it, um, getting more enlightened, just feeling happier, releasing yourself from suffering, all this journey, which the meditation that we both do is all about, is a big component of that. And that's what this whole series is going to be about, hmm. which is rather convenient, the artist's question, <laughs> <laughs> which wasn't staged, um, <laughs> no. which is about giving the intellect bouncer guy thing, evening classes, <laughs> Right. So that when ideas come to it, it has a clearer understanding of what should and shouldn't be allowed into the ego. Right. And what mm. should and shouldn't be resisted. Yes. Because it's natural default setting, the ego is very mistaken. So is it that the, the intellect actually sometimes has to catch up with the egos? Exactly. Lessons or what yeah. it comes so to understand. It's the intellect that's the problem from the Vedic view, not the ego. So I guess the next question would be how do you – what do the evening classes look like? I mean people can come to your evening classes <laughs> at the meditation centre. <laughs> um, yeah, well, they look like this chat is going to hopefully start to form into what it's going to start to form into. So what the evening classes look like are gaining an understanding – of the true forces of nature, the true laws of nature, of cause and effect, if you like, of what's actually happening under the surface um, and which actually controls all this activity on the surface. And when we start to become familiar with those and understand them, we can work with them rather than against them. And the result of this is less friction, less suffering and greater advantage and progress. Mm, yes. Yeah, okay. So is the, how about the intellect? Is it is it um is it happy to be corrected if it's yeah. given a strong case? It actually is. That's the thing. And um, what the intellect needs is experience. If the intellect can be shown through repeated experience that there's a better idea than the one it's been using all this time, then it will correct. Mm. Um, it will correct itself and it will start to kind of claim credit for <laughs> that, that idea. Mm. Um, and it will start to use that as its administrative logic, if you yes. like. Um, but you need to be, yeah, so our job is to present ideas that are curious enough to the intellect... Um, for the intellect to allow it to be used as a way of living 
And then eventually the intellect will capitulate, if you like, or get on board. And when it gets on board, um, we find that life gets a lot easier. Yes. This is all making a lot of sense to me because I've found that, you know, there there are lots of times where I feel like I've learnt something yeah. and I understand something in a new way. There's mm. a part of me that does and a part mm. of me that wants to kind of update and grow, but then mm-hmm. there's another part of me that's keeping me, that that's not kind of coming with me. Mm. And it does seem to take a while for it to catch up to where it's like I've evolved, but yeah. something in me hasn't yet. Mm. And there's that catch up period. Yeah. So it goes in this order. Consciousness develops first, then the intellect catches up, and then finally the body. So let's explore what that means. So you can expand your consciousness and be in a higher state. And if, for example, you might meet somebody, let's say they're meditated for 20 years, and yet for some reason they still seem to be suffering and possibly even causing other suffering. Mm. Why would that be? Somebody meditates for 20 years, you've had all that flipping of the ego to um, experience itself as being. So you're experiencing yourself as being, right? And how could being be mistake, be anything other than wise and loving and not in the market for suffering? Mm. Well, that would be underestimating the power of the intellect, the mistaken intellect. Right. And also it would be underestimating the power of what we might call samskara. Meaning... Meaning the mind grooves, the very, very established response patterns that are formed due to previous stresses and previous traumas. Yes. Okay. Okay. So let's have a look at how we might be able to undo those things. So you meditate and this is a really good start. And you start to have an experience of yourself as something other than the mind and other than the feelings and other, other than the thoughts. And that's a good start. But what you then need to do is, as we discussed, correct the mistaken intellectual ideas around how we interact with the world. And let's look at an example of that. Okay? Okay. Okay, so let's look at a classic um, mistake of the intellect and how we may be able to correct that. So the intellect seems to have a default setting that the unknown is dangerous. Yes. Yeah. I know that. Yes. Yeah. So there's a new situation and you clam up and you, depending on how powerful the feeling is, you might not even do the thing which you feel like you should mm-hmm. because it's just too unknown and too uncomfortable. Yes. Okay. And that seems to be there. And that's based on some kind of idea of survival. Because there's some sort of logic there that the more dangerous places, the more unknown places, are the more dangerous places because you, you, know, you might not be able to deal with what's there. So I'll try and disprove that now from the Vedic perspective. So the Vedic view is that there is no such thing as good and evil, at least not in the polarised normal sense. Instead, there are three interbalancing, interrelating forces which exist in everything. Sometimes one of them's primary, sometimes another one of them's primary, and so on. And those three forces are creation, Maintenance and destruction. Okay. Okay. Now, to live a happy, healthy, useful life, we need to be prioritizing creation. That means we are moving into the unknown, doing fresh, innovative things, 
And as long as we do that, then maintenance is in, that means that creation's in the primary position. Maintenance will be underneath in a secondary position. And third will be destruction at the bottom. And as long as we're doing that, we tend to find that obviously destruction plays a lesser role. And we have reasonably free and abundant and enjoyable activity. And we're becoming pretty useful as well. But what we tend to do, human nature is, we do that. We step into the unknown, something great happens, and then we go, oh, I like this. I want to hold on to this. Yes. <laughs> might be a job, might be a relationship, um, might be a status. So we do. And then that means we're moving into maintenance. So okay. maintenance now becomes primary. And destruction always stays next to maintenance. So now destruction's secondary and creation is now third. So it's not playing much of a role. And you start to right. think of examples of how this might apply in your life. Yes. Maybe relationships is a good one. Um, and so you start to, nature doesn't like this. It doesn't like stagnation. So maintenance, too much maintenance, things are not flowing. And actually there's a word in Sanskrit, ama, means non-flow, which describes the kind of buildup of negative toxins. Okay. So what it will do, nature will start to give you a few little clips around the ear, like a few warning signs. You'll feel a bit uncomfortable. Maybe you'll feel mentally or physically not great or well-being might go dip a little bit. Um, maybe abundance dries up a bit. If you don't take notice of these clues, you get the punch in the face. Yes. And the punch in the face is nature saying, okay, well, you don't seem to want to remove those things which have become irrelevant to your evolution. I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to do it for you. And so now we've got destruction at the top. And destruction isn't evil, but it removes all the things which have become irrelevant for your evolution that you haven't removed. Yes. In order to actually clear space for greater creation. But the experience of it is usually pretty uncomfortable. Stroke, a nightmare. <laughs> uh, chaotic, and there's a lot of fallout. And you've got a mess. So let's take the example of if you're drinking too much. You're drinking too much. Um, and you're getting bad hangovers. It's affecting work and relationships and so on. Um, but you're not taking any notice of those clips around the ear. So then you get the punch in the face in the form of losing your job and your partner leaving you. Yeah. Now, you've got chaos on your hands. So what do we do when we're presented with chaos? We have to get creative to fix it. So then creation moves back to the top. And we have to do something new. Let's say in this case, go into rehab. Yes. And completely sort ourselves out. So you see, that's a creation cycle. Now, the purpose of me telling you that was to prove this point. That the unknown is not the dangerous place, as the intellect likes to say it is. Because we can see by that, it's not actually the unknown that's the dangerous place. It's the ever-repeating known, which is dangerous, and attracts destruction. So quite against what the intellect says, it turns out that the unknown is the safest place. And when we're moving into the unknown, we keep away the destructive elements, which we experience, frankly, as not very nice. Okay? So that's just one example of how we can create the mistake, correct rather, the mistaken intellect and start to work along a different paradigm, a different way of approaching life. Just think about the 
permutations of that or the ramifications in your life if you applied that and how you could spot the clips around the ear and avoid destruction. Yes. So, so for example, in this situation, you could keep doing something that you could every day choose to move into an unknown thing that you perceived would be a, of value. Yeah. And by doing that on a daily basis or consistently, yeah. the intellect would update. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. So this is where it starts to move into its nuance and how you do it. So it's not like you need to chuck out the baby with the bathwater constantly. It's not like you get a new partner every day, for example, is it? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> so some things remain relevant. Um, and there might be some structures and some routines which are really good. The idea is to always have that sense of looking to create and looking to evolve in what you're doing. So you may not even have to change your job. You may just do your job in a different way, um, kind of accessing different ways of creatively approaching the same thing. You may not need a new girlfriend or boyfriend every day, just a different way of being with them and an intention to evolve together the whole time you see so it's not you know if we take it just on its face value as a headline <laughs> we just be butchering our lives constantly yeah it's it's obviously and there's lots of unknown things that aren't good for us as well talk to me about that a bit i mean you wouldn't be going i wouldn't go hmm there's a lot of things that are unknown that i could do mm. but i probably wouldn't go um for a midnight swim 300 meters out on my own because mm. it's the unknown yeah very good point so there's a so <laughs> there's unknown that you can perceive yeah. has a value and kind of an evolution yeah. a positive evolutionary value and then there's an unknown which maybe is a bit of a silly idea very good point so that leads us on to another fundamental of this whole thing which is how do we navigate forwards how do we know what the right thing to do is or how do we know what's evolutionary <laughs> and creative or just plain silly, like you say. So there is a Vedic navigation system. You'll be pleased to hear. Great. Yes. We all need that. Yes. Um, and what it's here for is to, again, <laughs> poor old intellect, it's going to be replacing the old, out-of-date, rather rubbish um, intellectual navigation system. So if you think about it, the intellect's not very good at navigating into the future. It can't predict the future. No. There's a reason for this. The intellect is fed by the data from the five senses, which it can crunch and work stuff out from. And it also has an idea of what worked last time. And all its decisions that it helps us make in terms of navigating into the future are based on that. But none of that information actually shows what's going to happen in the future. Right? So what you'll see is if you look back in your life is generally those decisions about how we plan and move into the future based on the intellectual ideas, they're pretty much guesswork. Yes. And it very rarely turns out the way we want it to or thought it might. Mm. Yeah. So, but we continue to use the intellects. Like, you know, you'll, you'll meet people and they'll say, I say, what are you doing this weekend? And they'll say, I'm going to go up to, I'm just making this up, but I'm going to go away to a, a cabin. I'm going to go and think about, I've got to think about this thing. I just need some time to work uh -oh. out, <laughs> work out what my next step is. And look, that might be one way of finding space for the, for the truth to arise. But if it's just lots of thinking, intellectual thinking, it's, it's unlikely that that's going to bring the right answer. 
So what do we do instead? Is there an alternative? There is. And it's one that we all know about. It's not, I mean, we're just going to refine it and kind of justify it here and kind of help prove it a little bit maybe. But it's basically gut or intuition. And a Vedic term for this is charm and following charm. So the principle, the theory is that the universe is constantly communicating with us. It's always showing us the right thing to do. And by the right thing, we mean the most evolutionary thing for you and in turn for the rest of all of creation, all of the universe. And it communicates that to you in a very simple way, by giving you a little feeling when there's a proposition to act. And the little feeling is a little pull in the direction of the thing that's best to do. And how would you describe it? Lots of ways. It's like a little whisper in the ear saying, go on this one. Or like a little tug from your heart towards it. You know, it's something we've all experienced. In fact, we experience it all the time. Like when we came into this room, Anna, we both decided to sit on a chair based on that. Okay? Yeah. So charm is operating all the time and showing us what to do. What we get for lunch, what we choose to... Yeah. Yeah, where we choose to walk to maybe when we go on a morning walk. That's right. This is all potentially charm. <laughs> we'll come back to why it's potentially charm. Um, but when it comes to bigger decisions, we start to, we don't use that intuitive, felt approach. Instead, we move into the intellect and making intellectual decisions about things and then wonder why it's so confusing and we just don't seem to know what to do. So the Vedic idea, the Vedic theory, which you can just make a lifetime practice out of, is when there's a proposition to act and there's proposition A and B, simply go with that which feels like it's pulling in the direction straight away. There's a raw, palpable feeling which comes at that moment. It doesn't last long. And if you don't listen to it and start going into the intellect and working it out again, you've lost the connection and you're back to guesswork. But if you get into the habit of feeling that feeling and then leaping before you look, you'll start to find, well, you'll do your own research, but you may start to find, and my prediction is, that you'll move with more frictionlessness, um, you'll find greater support of nature, you'll find that things seem to be conspiring to help you more, and your general experience is more one of fulfilment and easy flow. So this is the idea of following charm. And in the case of, um, you know, what's the most creative thing to do, they're totally aligned. Charm is creation. Okay. Charm is creation. Okay, so you're down on the beach at night and whatever, it's shark time. It's very unlikely, stroke, not going to happen, that charm is going to say, go for a swim out there. Because that would potentially be destruction. That would be destruction, potentially. And let's say very non-evolutionary. Yeah. <laughs> Hence why I've never done it. Yeah, well, there you go. You obviously tuned at least to some extent into charm or (laughs) otherwise known as common sense. (laughs) So charm will never tell you not to do something. Charm Mm. will tell you to do something. Okay, yeah. But there is is its cousin, the Vedic cousin, which is also part of the navigation system. And it is called aversion. And aversion will tell you not to do something. Um, So aversion is when you just feel this strong impulse that something's not going to serve you. It's not a good thing to do. Okay? So you've got charm that feels palpably like it's the thing you should do and aversion is the thing you shouldn't do. And both these signals are communicated to us 
on a subtler level than through the senses. So these are all communicated to us on a subtle level by consciousness, by nature, and received through the heart. Then you start trying little decisions and seeing how it goes. And as those decisions seem to work, this is the thing that happens. When we talked about it earlier, the intellect. Yes. So the intellect, at first, at first the intellect goes, what do you mean? This is anarchy. You know the deal. I have to check, check all these decisions and, you know, it crosses its arms and it's all annoyed. Um, and if you give into that and go back to the intellect, you'll just go back to guesswork again. But if you can just keep running the experiment and over, overriding the intellect and going with intuition, with charm, you'll start to realise, as will the intellect, the experiences seem to be flowing quite well. And then at some point, the intellect goes, yeah, well, anyway, I knew this. This is a good idea. This is, this is pretty much my idea, <laughs> I'll in fact. That. Yeah, I will have this. And, um, and from that point, it's starting to be corrected. This is a good example of how the intellect will be corrected through experience. So we're, I think we're coming back to answering the original question. I don't even remember the original. The original question was, how do you um, stop suffering even though you're, you know what you should be doing, really? Oh, yes. Moving no. through blocks. Yes. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, so that's good. Now, the thing is, on both sides of this, both with charm and also with aversion, there are shadows or red herrings. So there are very similar things which are actually not to be mistaken for charm. So, for example, with charm, it could be charm, the feeling you feel, or it could be desire with attachment. How would you know the difference? How would you know the difference? This is the million dollar question. A million dollars doesn't even sound I like hope much you anymore, have does it? The million dollar answer? Of course. So um, the ultimate answer is that you will only know on the fine level of feeling. Okay? okay. So the fine level of feeling is um, the deeper level on which we always know the truth. Okay? So the thing is, on the way to refining that sense, we can use the intellect to help us. Oh dear, that's good. You get, you're, getting, you're getting lost. Uh, I just on that note, using the intellect to help. Correct. I feel like I kind yeah. of want to. Okay, look. So the not intellect, pull the intellect in. Okay. <laughs> so the intellect can be used. The intellect is used to correct the intellect. Oh. Yeah, the intellect right. is used to correctly to correct the intellect. It takes a thorn to remove a thorn. And it's actually the intellect which will correct itself in the way. And is it is, a different part of is 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 it is it another layer of the intellect or is no, the it the same thing? Correcting the intellect the same again thing? is ultimately neutral. Um, but this is just depends what ideas are fed into it, and we're feeding in some clever ideas which are closer to the truth and more useful, and so they'll correct the parts of the intellect which is which has wrong ideas. Okay. Okay, and let's let's just look at a little example of that here. So um, let's say you, you've got this feeling you should go to New York. And you're like, ah, oh, it feels like charm, but maybe it's desire with attachment. And desire with attachment, just to define that, that's more an idea that comes not as a direct message from the universe as to just something that's evolutionary for us and everyone else, but rather from a somewhere in the subconscious and based on some sense of lack or fear, okay? And that would be like desire with attachment. And the key word there is attachment. So we can test this in the following way. Imagine that you don't get the thing 
that you feel like you really want. Imagine if you couldn't go to New York. Do you feel like that would get in the way of your fulfillment? Okay, this is the idea. If the answer is yes, it's probably desire with attachment. Because you're working from a level of consciousness within which it feels as though external things and outcomes are still going to determine your level of fulfillment. So it's an imperfect way of gauging it, but it's quite a good, gives you quite a good indication. Does that example yeah, make sense to you? Yeah, it does make sense. Yeah, and if you can imagine not can getting... Can live without this thing? Yeah, if you can imagine, it's not even can, can I live, because you'll be able to live without it. But if you imagine that you don't go to New York, will you feel still feel fulfilled? Then you're more likely to be operating from a place of charm without attachment. Now, at the other end, and this is also interesting, aversion, the thing that is stopping us from doing things. And very, you've got to be very careful with this. Yes, yeah, that, that actually came up before. Yeah. Um, yeah, because fear and aversion can would exactly. feel quite the same, right? Exactly. So you go, yeah, I've just got such aversion to going training at the moment. I'm just not going. <laughs> I'm not getting up. Or I've got such aversion to going for a cold water swim in the morning, yes. even though it's probably quite good for me. Um, so let's take the cold water swim. It's a good example. We've got to be careful not to mistake aversion for resistance. And resistance can actually be charm with a resistance coating, meaning we kind of know we should do it, but there's some quant- some amount of discomfort which is going to be experienced on the way to experiencing that thing. So we go, oh, no, I don't want to do it then. For example, going for a cold swim in the morning, it's like you know you'll feel really good afterwards, but the bed feels so nice, and you're going to have to get up and get cold. So you can say, I've got a version. It's not a version. It's charm. You're getting a signal to do something. You just don't want to feel the feeling you'll have to feel in order to acquire that growth that comes from it. So you see, at both ends of the scale, you've got charm and aversion, and you've got the flip side of those. And the, the best, shadow? The shadow, yeah, the shadow. And the best way to start to really be able to delineate and distinguish between the real thing and its shadow is practice. So what I recommend to you and anyone who's listening is to start to make charm, following charm, a way of life. And you don't need to start, you know, with deciding whether to sell your house or leave your husband or wife or any of that stuff. Just start by what cafe to go to, what beach to go to. Oh, listen to me, Bondi guy, <laughs> first world problem, um, and so on. So you can use, yeah, you just practice a little bit and see how it flows. Um and I predict it'll flow well. And frankly, you haven't got too much to lose because if you really look at the track record of the intellect in making these decisions, it's really not very good. I guess my question would be, how, like, how would you distinguish the feeling of fear and uh, of resistance and aversion? Mm-hmm. Is, yeah. is, there, is there a bodily sensation that you can attune to? Yes, we can do that, but we'd use the intellect again. Again, ultimately, the most accurate um, signal comes on that subtle level to the heart. Yeah, um, But on the way to doing that, we simply ask ourselves the question, just a little bit of inner inquiry. And inquiry is, just as it sounded, is this something I should actually do? 
but I'm just scared of feeling something along the way. And it sounds so obvious, but that inner inquiry is all it needs. And you should know. Activate charm, right? Mm. Tell me about that. What do, you, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Well, if you ask, is this something I should actually do or should I run from it? Mm. Would, could charm could potentially be activated in that moment and go, yes, you should do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's an inquiry into, an inquiry into the truth. A sincere inquiry into, into the truth can enliven a clearer signal. So I guess uh, the focus can be on the inquiry. Mm. Asking really good questions. Asking really good questions yourself. And eventually the whole thing gets automatic. So whilst it starts, it kind of sounds like a laborious process slightly at the start. Like It becomes a, a dialogue-free process with no separate thought at all. As You just get adjusted and guided in your path through each day and each week and each month and each year simply by some invisible, soundless prompts and cues which are kind of correcting you slightly and pushing you in certain ways. Just like riding a bike, how you might, when you first do it, be making more conscious adjustments as the wind changes direction or you're going around a corner. But quite quickly, you're just responding to those little minute corrections all happening spontaneously and naturally. And the same thing happens with um, following charm. Um, And it gets to the point where you really aren't making any choices at all. Would you call that feeling being in flow? Yeah, exactly, in flow. And what are you in flow with? You're in flow with the evolutionary current of consciousness. So consciousness has plans. And it has agendas, and that agenda is evolution for you and all things. And there are certain currents which optimize the evolution of everything. And if you're in one of those currents and actually contributing to it, you'll feel the frictionlessness, the feeling from where the idea of flow comes. So it's about basically, basically, it does. it's not very basic, but moving from the mistaken intellect into that, into this kind of wider, what would you, what did you call it before this, um, why this agenda, what, what mm. is it like a God conscious agenda um, of what you should be doing with your life? Yeah. So you're moving from an individual Agenda, which most people have based on a kind of neediness um, about meeting certain bodily bodily impulses. Feelings, pleasures. Yeah, pleasures, impulses, ways of feeling comfortable as an individual and aligning with the, um, with the, what's the word, the agenda of the universe, which is to create a perfectly correlated, ever-progressing evolutionary pattern for yourself and all things. And so, in other words, playing the role that the universe wants you to play in assisting with everything. So, in an overall benefiting the overall organism rather than just yourself. And guess what? It actually feels better as well for you. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think we have to finish there. Um, yeah. But thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we do finish? Can't wait for the next one. Me too. Okay. I'm excited to see where we go. Thanks, Anna. Thank you, Matt. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Very Vedic. Produced by Studio Offline, technical production by Podpaste, original music by Al Royale. If you're keen to learn how to meditate, or you have a question you'd like answered, DM me on Instagram at Bondi Meditation, or email info at bondimeditation.com.au. Until next time, Jay Guru Dev.